welcome to the Arts Report for September 3rd, 2014. Back to school. Today we have a focus on the fringe. Elizabeth Kirkman from The Good of the Sun is here in studio to talk about her play. And Andrew Wade from The Hatter is on later in the show. Christine Kim talks about Edward Albee's The Zoo Story. And I will fill you in on the Latin American Film Festival. Stay tuned. everybody thanks for listening we're doing a lot of coverage of the fringe festival and it starts tomorrow so don't forget to check out our live broadcast as well outside the agro cafe on granville island that's monday september 8th between 5 to 7 p.m so drop by if you are around or listen on citr.ca or on your radio dial 101.9 fm so we have a lovely guest in the studio today elizabeth kirk kirkland hello thank you for coming in of course and so you've got to play the good of the sun Mm -hmm. and there's some publicity coming out about it yeah it's uh it was actually really exciting just before i got on the bus to come here um uh, there's an article now in the georgia street about our show and it's um, it being part of the New Dramatic Works series mm-hmm. at the Fringe this year. Excellent. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about the play itself. Cool. Well, the play focuses on on Max and Mary. Um, Max is much older. They're married, and Max is much older, and he's ill. So they go down to Mexico. Uh, I should also say that the play's set in the 50s. So they go down to Mexico for him to get better. And uh, his doctor is attractive, and Mary takes a liking to him and Max thinking potentially he might not make it decides to do something about about that and about Mary's attraction to the doctor so it's kind of a uh, one of our taglines is a 1950s version of an open relationship Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's I was like those stories are so generous like I'm gonna die so I'll fix you up with him but it's like (laughs) no I would never do that well and I mean you know come see the play to see how it ends yeah but um yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. I mean, there's there's so much complexity in mm-hmm. in that relationship, obviously. So the playwright's quite well known. Mm-hmm. Tell me a bit about her. Cool. Well, she actually uh, went to UBC starting in 1951, I believe, um, and then she later became a professor at SFU, and she taught for 18 years. And she she unfortunately passed away in 1983, but she left behind I think over 75 plays. And uh, one published novel, and um, and a bunch of radio plays, as well. Really? That's interesting. Mm-hmm. As I said to you earlier, I thought she was coming into the studio tonight, <laughs> but she passed away in 1983. I guess yeah. like thir- thirty years ago. Uh, Thirty-one. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, but hopefully she's here in spirit. And yeah. so it looked like from the press releases I saw that yeah, she was very accomplished, obviously mm-hmm. prolific, and. Mm-hmm she wrote a very good script. So yeah. tell me how you find the script is good. Oh, wow. Um, the characters are complicated and interesting and flawed and lovely. And I feel like, I mean, anyway, I feel like most, anyone who comes to see the show will find some aspect of, of one of the characters that they can grasp onto and really um, explore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, from an actor's 
point of view. I mean, that makes a good script. Yeah. <laughs> a good character that I can dig my teeth into. Yeah. So what character do you play? I play Mary. So you're the star or a star? Yeah. I mean, it's a three-hander, so it's... Okay. And what's a three... <laughs> what's a three-hander? It Sorry. sounds kind of kinky. Yeah. Uh, three actors. Okay. Three characters. A trio. Yeah. Excellent. Mm -hmm. So you're all carrying sort of equal weight in a way. I would say so. I mean, there certainly is more focus on Max and Mary, but yeah, I mean, we all have pretty important roles okay, in, tell, the, in the story. Tell me a bit about your history as an actor. Well, I, uh, I graduated from U of C in Calgary um, 10 years ago now, I guess that was. And uh, yeah, I've been kind of working professionally and, and in this capacity and, you know, fringe capacity for for the last 10 years, working both in Calgary and, and here as well. So every year you participate in the Fringe? Well, not, not every year, but um, uh, I guess Fringe-like shows, I right. guess you could say. Well, that's exciting. Mm -hmm. What do you like about being an actor? Oh, uh, that it's always different mm -hmm. and that there's always new challenges. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it can be hard in that you, you have to go into essentially interviews, hopefully every day. It doesn't happen every day, but you know, hopefully you have an audition or, or something. But um, yeah, it's also it's also a lot about exploring the human spirit, which I which I really appreciate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you produce this play as well. Yeah. So what does yeah. that entail? Uh, everything else. <laughs> um, I, my, I have a co-producer, which is amazing, uh, Tenille Geib, who's also the director. So her and I have been working together since December before then. Um, just working on um, the publicity material that, you know, we sent to you, working on finding a set designer and working with the set designer, um, Shelby Bushell, to uh, kind of imagine what the set might look like with the costume designer, Jada, Jada Novak, and, and Andrew Pye, our lighting designer, to, to work, work those aspects into the show. Also auditions, you know, holding auditions, finding audition space. It's, it's kind of a, um, it's the catch-all. It also involves a lot of emails. <laughs> <laughs> the bane of modern life. Yes, exactly. Wow. So when's your first show? Saturday, okay. September 6th. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 8 p.m. And so I'm just looking here. Saturday, 6 at 8 p.m. September mm -hmm. 9th at 7 p.m. Mm -hmm. September 11th at 5.30 p.m. Wow, you've got quite a few. September yes. 12th, September yeah. 13th. Yeah. Uh, September 14th. I thought it was interesting. I saw here scent design, yeah, as well as stage management. Ryan Car Karen, Karen, yeah. What is what? What is the role of scent in the film? Uh, in the in the show in the show. Theater, sorry, so. no, that's okay. Um, uh, scent. Well, our our director Tanil Gaib generally doesn't uh, direct things where a table actually means a table. So for her, she needed to kind of bring some some other aspects in there. And she, she also just really wanted to immerse the audience a bit more into the experience of the show. So for her, that meant scent as well as um, heat. Mm -hmm. So I mean, no one's going to be overwhelmed by anything, but... Um, oh, really? Yeah. That's interesting. So yeah. it's set in Mexico, so there's going to be extra heat in the room? Yeah, in some of the scenes, there will be a bit of extra heat wow. uh, if all goes well. Um, and so scent design, uh, Ryan just totally stepped up to the plate. He said it was on his bucket list of, of things to do for theater. So he just got in, hit, got in there with two feet and, and, and created this wonderful design of smells for everyone. Mm -hmm. So, 
Wonderful. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit more about, it it says here, the ideas of monogamy, tradition, infidelity, and Mm -hmm. what it is to be a woman with choice are at Mm -hmm. the heart of their conversations as they they move through the the play. Mm -hmm. Um, And somewhere Betty says here that when she wrote the play, she said she's always had trouble feeling free to express what she truly believes in. And she said she has anger around being a woman and being raised to believe her sexuality was dirty. Obviously, mm-hmm. she was born in the 30s. 33. Yeah. Um, but today, we're still dealing with the choices of good and evil. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting that this was sort of maybe a cathartic experience for her to explore sexuality. Mm-hmm. and. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a lot of her plays deal with... Um, sexuality in in this kind of way if can i read a quote from from of course a yes another quote uh let's see so this is from a letter she wrote to her friend gloria i feel truly victimized and not by men but my own, but by my own cultural conditioning how do you fight when the enemy has outposts in your own mind and that she wrote to her friend and i think um it speaks a lot to the idea that I guess our our sexuality isn't necessarily defined by us. It's defined in some time, sometimes defined by people around us. So it's the idea of, of, of Mary being a woman with choice. She's trying to define her own sexuality and trying to define herself in this new world that she finds herself in, in Mexico. And she's having a hell of a time doing it with, the, you know, the expectations of her husband with the expectations of 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 this doctor that she finds really attractive mm-hmm. so yeah mm-hmm. wow that's mm-hmm. amazing i mean yeah i think growing up like well i was born in the 70s but 70s 80s sort of a newer generation not really even understanding what it was like for women mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. Um, like when i think of my grandmother who was born around the same time as betty lambert um you know you had a role to play. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah. when you see those old-fashioned books about how women were to be, mm-hmm. like, never bother your husband. Always smile. You know, have everything nice. Always look nice. Always smile nice. Like, it was, yeah. I mean, no wonder she talks about the cultural conditioning. and Totally. I like that, the enemy in her own mind. How yeah. do you overcome that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think... Um, I actually was reading this on the bus right here. So this, I think, is going to be a quote that I will move through this process with as an actor mm-hmm. from now on because it's it's definitely something that Mary is struggling with. Mm-hmm. So in the press release, you actually included, which is interesting because I study psychology, non-traditional <laughs> relationship facts and quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I had a quick look over it, and it's quite interesting. Um, why did you include the quotes and and information about non-traditional relationship facts for people well it was something that you know we kind of like I said earlier it's a 1950s version of an open relationship and I it was kind of something that was that well in a practical standpoint as producers kind of gave us a bit of a hook perhaps you know people find it interesting they they want to talk about sex they want to talk about relationships it's on our brains all the time (laughs) so not um, on my brain (laughs) (laughs) so um yeah, I mean that's part of the reason why I included it, but but it's also just something that's that um, we think deserves to be talked about. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. So, what's your opinion on on it? If you 
I mean, I can talk about my opinion on yeah. it, which is, I'm just not sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, well, everyone needs to obviously find it for themselves, yeah. right? Whether it works for them or not. Um, but I think sometimes it does work and it works really well for some people. Yeah. I mean, I think theoretically it mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because people do struggle with monogamy and it causes a lot of friction yeah. when things, you know, relationships break down, mm-hmm. um, because you're holding it to the standard of monogamy. Yeah. At the same time, non-monogamy seems rather stressful yeah. as well. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of work to process mm-hmm. through all of the feelings and all, yeah. I mean, the feelings and emotions and everything that. Yeah, might yeah, come with and it. complications. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah, definitely, yeah, complications. Um, there's actually, if I can read another quote. Sure. Uh, this one is Dan Savage. So, uh, the cultural expectation should be if there's infidelity, the marriage is more important than fidelity. Right. Yeah. So, you slept with someone else, but I'm not going to be that mad at you because our primary relationship is mm-hmm. more important. Yeah. 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 I mean, and, but some people might totally agree with that. And some people might yeah. be like, no, not I think for me. I agree with it. I think I agree with it. I think the level of psychological maturity it mm-hmm. takes to practice it. Yeah. Would be, you know, more than I, you know what I mean? Yeah. A high level of Very, psychological yeah. maturity. Yeah. Yeah. High level and a lot of trust. Yeah. I would say as well. I actually had a guest on here about a year and a half ago who was, uh, I think, well, he did a one-man play. I can't remember his name now or the play, but about how he opened up his relationship mm. with his wife and his bisexuality. And, right. you know, they had had this very traditional two kids, boring, hadn't had sex in years. And mm-hmm. then um, they opened up their marriage. He came out about his bisexuality. And then they had this wonderful relationship. They're happier than ever. And mm-hmm. I was really, I had really a lot of trepidation about doing the interview mm. and what's this guy like? And I'm not sure about all this. And uh, he was really... lovely and frank and I was just like okay you know um so each to their own I guess yeah I might have to look that guy up (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm sorry I can't remember his name (laughs) okay but he does counseling and stuff for people in non-traditional relationships so I think it's great that you're doing this you're right it it will be a hook for people Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean and and the 1950s version part of open relationship is important because it is set in the 50s, written right. in the 60s. So, I mean, the exp- exploration of the idea of open relationships is not as frank a discussion as we are having now, right? right. It's, there's a lot that isn't said yeah. in, their, in their conversations. Yeah. Do you think that then, like, for a modern audience, is it is it too tame then? We look at it now as being tame mm. at the time when she wrote it. Or yeah. d- when did she write it? Uh, my understanding is kind of late fifties, and it was okay. originally it originally aired as a radio drama on CBC in nineteen sixty. Oh wow! So mm-hmm. at the time, it probably brought brought up a lot of controversial feelings. I imagine it was current yeah. at the time. Now yeah. we look back and compared to what we're exposed to now. Mm-hmm. Yet, mm-hmm. if good drama is always current, it doesn't yeah. age. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's. It's the human condition. It doesn't yeah. change that much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for better or worse. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, so tell me, how are you feeling as that you're leading up to the Fringe? Because you've got quite a few performances. Yeah, uh, good. 
really, really good. Um, we had our tech yesterday, which which means getting into the theater and and bringing our set in and getting our lights up and and the scent design, getting that all organized and everything. So um, I feel really confident and and calm now. Still excited and lots of energy, but mm-hmm. good. And it's at the Colch. Yeah, That's the Colch. An, an exciting venue. Yeah, it's not. It's in the uh, the lab, the Colch lab, so okay. the small space on on the, the one side. But um, that space is great. It's intimate and lovely and mm-hmm. wonderful. And you're going to be on. Is it? I was going to say Sex in the City, but that can't be right. What's oh, the, Sexy in Van City. Sexy in Van City. Yeah. And, and that's at 10 p.m. tonight? Yeah. yeah. Excellent. So Here, you're going to be again. back talking about it with your co-producer. <laughs> mm-hmm. And director, Tanil Gaib, yeah. Excellent. So on um, Monday, we're doing a live broadcast from mm-hmm. outside the Agro Cafe. So yeah. if you're around, please drop by and good. have a chat with us again. And Will tell do. us how it went on the weekend. Great. That was so nice of you. Awesome. come in and yeah thank you Sarah. it's really exciting to hear about it i i hope to see it i'm i'm going to be seeing a few things from the f- the fringe mm-hmm. um and so yeah well anything else before we wrap up no you can buy tickets on uh vancouverfringe.com just search the good of the sun excellent and it'll come up okay good and the the um website is vancouverfringe.com yeah, and we'll be true. right back with Christine Kim talking about Edward Albee's The Zoo. So we'll be right back on CITR 101.9 FM. Listen, if they're so hot, how come they're not tearing up the charts, babe? Because you never play them, babe. At CITR, our hosts choose the music they play. That means our charts actually reflect the tastes of music lovers, as opposed to focus groups. So if you want to know what's really tearing up the charts, get your hands on a copy of Beatroot, or Discorder Magazine, or go online to CITR.ca. CITR's charts are based on actual spins motivated by actual preference. No payola, no marketing, just good tunes. Refreshing, no? Join the Mount Pleasant Neighborhood House on September 27th from 12 to 6 p.m. in celebration of the diverse Mount Pleasant community at Metamorphos 2014. Enjoy a fun-filled day full of live music, an interactive art walk, and many activities for children, seniors, and everyone in between. Sponsored by Van City Credit Union. From September 4th to 14th, Edward Albee's The Zoo Story will be performing at the Van City Culture Lab. Directed by Tanya Matevanan, this play is about two men who meet completely without forewarning on a bench in New York City Central Park. It is set in the late 1950s and engages audiences with questions regarding social disparity and the dehumanizing effects of social norms. This incredibly accredited play has two characters, Peter, played by Scott Button, and Jerry, who is played by Tom Stevens. The dynamics of the two characters played out on stage will be a conversation definitely worth listening into. I'm Christine Kim, theater correspondent for the Arts Report, and the following is an exclusive interview I conducted with Tanya Matevanan, director of The Zoo Story, Tom Stevens, the actor playing Jerry, and Scott Button, the actor playing Peter. Take a listen. So first off, do you mind just giving me your name and then your involvement in the play? Uh, I'm Tanya and I'm directing. What made you pick The Zoo Story to produce and direct this time around? 
Uh, the zoo store is always a play that I was very interested in doing because I'm very interested in character-driven plays, and this play is basically all about the two characters. And it was kind of perfect for the Fringe because it was short. And I hear that the play is a lot about social disparity. So, in what ways do you think that this play presents the idea of social disparity in a really unique way? First, it was written in 1958, so you know it's the end of the Eisenhower period, start of the Beats period, and there was this movement against sort of social norms and structures and divisions at the time. But if we look around today, I mean, 50 years later, 60 years later, it's pretty much the same. We still have all of that. Class divisions, people looking down on other people because of the way they dress, the way、mm. they speak, circumstances, and、uh, we tend to neglect the others of society—a、uh, concept that's been around for pretty much always. If you look at Beowulf, even. So I think that is something that's really relevant. And is there a motive for a reoccurring symbol that you can tell our listeners about in this play? And if so, how does it connect to the overarching themes of the play? Well, I think the most obvious one is the zoo story itself. <laughs>、um, this story about Jerry's trip to the zoo, which he keeps bringing up and dangling in front of Peter, and you know, do we ever get to the zoo story? Is the entire New York zoo story, society、mm-hmm. zoo story? There are a lot of questions there, and it could be any of them, or none of them, <laughs> or all of them. But it's certainly. Something that keeps cropping up throughout the play. And for yourself, what what do you think was the most difficult aspect about directing the zoo story for you? The zoo story is very different from all the other shows that I've done before. A, a lot of times when we direct, we do it in bits. You know, we do sections by sections. It was very hard to do it for this particular show、mm-hmm. because it requires so much improvisation. It, the flow of it is very difficult to break, and it's、mm. such an emotional roller coaster that it it was very difficult to also even comprehend how the characters get from one stage to another, let alone try and direct the actors <laughs> there and to communicate, you know, what it is that you want. So that、mm. was very challenging. <laughs> I see. And you talked about improvisation.、Mm-hmm. Um, could you elaborate a little bit on how much improvisation there is with each showing of the play? Would you say that each showing is a little bit different than the other because of how much there is? There will be, you know, elements of it that are quite different depending on how. It's so dependent on the actors more th- so than the plot. So even how they come in, like we were discussing earlier in rehearsal today, how they start off, how they're feeling each day will. Inform how they start off the play, which、mm-hmm. will pretty much then the play takes itself from there. I hear the character Jerry is the more talkative one、um, in the play,、um, with lots of stories to share. So, how do you think this idea of a story within a story adds layer or another depth to the production? Well, in a way, we're all storytellers. Our lives are all stories. That's what they are. We all individually have our own stories. So, within the play, there's Jerry telling the story of his life, and then the play itself is almost an aspect of the playwright's life, and it's a reflection on society at the time, which is a story of you know what was going on 
then and what's going on now even because it's still produced it's so relevant so mm -hmm. I think in a way the story within the story just brings out the aspect of how pretty much stories define us and we each have our own stories and they're important mm -hmm. thank you so much uh, would you just start off with your name and your uh, role in the play uh, my name's Tom Stevens, and I'm playing Jerry for the zoo story. So, like I asked Tanya, I hear that the character Jerry is the more talkative one in the play with lots and lots of stories to tell. How do you think that this idea of a story within a story adds another layer of depth uh, to the production? I think calling him talkative is putting it pretty lightly. <laughs> but uh, usually when you go to theater, you're watching a show and there's the stories being told from somebody's perspective but it's up to you to interpret how you feel the idea of having Jerry tell this huge story to Peter leaves us with us the audience members with the opportunity to actually be informed on how we should be responding to something like this because in the way that Peter is an audience member within this the audience then gets to funnel what he's feeling to themselves now, could you tell our listeners just about Jerry as a character, um, a little bit more about who he is in the play? Jerry as a character is one of those people that you would maybe talk to on a drunk night when you're waiting for the bus. When you've had just enough to liberate yourself socially and still maintain enough wherewithal to not uh, pass out or think that this person's trying to rob you. It, it's it's the stranger. It's that person that you meet that seems to have a need to talk to you. You just are in the right headspace for it. Not, not many people have, have the bravery or the fearlessness to do that. But Jerry is definitely that person. He's, he's lonely. He's totally on his own mentally, emotionally, physically. Uh, very little in his life is, is actually giving him meaning. And he's now at probably one of the lowest points in his in his life and he comes into an isolated place in uh, Central Park and he runs into Peter who just happens to be alone and this is this is that moment when when you see somebody approach somebody else that looks like you would never see them sit down next to each other or let alone talk to each other but this is the the conversation that can occur when two people step out of their little social confines and if you could liken Jerry to a particular zoo animal what would it be and why? I think Jerry likens himself to a lion, but wow. it's almost like a lion without a pride. <laughs> he's, mm. he's like the lion that, that mm. batted for leadership of the herd and lost. He's, he's been beaten down by, his, by his, everything that he's tried, that his mane is patchy and, and colorless, and mm. he, he just does not have the size or strength. That he wants. So he is a lion, but he's a lion that has gone through the grinder. And what aspect of the character um, do you find for yourself resonates with you most strongly? The thing with Jerry is he's so passionate. I have always been a passionate person to the point where it's almost like, whoa, slow down. But mm -hmm. I mean, it's what makes me want to be an actor, it's what makes me want to be a show person, somebody out in front. Um, not to mention, I was very, I was, I was very like socially awkward as a kid, which was due to homeschooling of all things, and uh, and it left me feeling in this place of total, you know, 
totally alone and, and kind of left out of the circle of things. And it took me a long time to be able to grow out of that and become the, the man that I am now. Mm-hmm. But I can find a lot of my own personality traits can be traced back to something that Jerry would have gone through or is going through. Do you mind just starting off with your name and then your role in the play? Mm-hmm. I'm Scott Button, and I'm playing Peter in our production of Zoo Story. And I hear that the character Jerry, your uh, counterpart in the play, is the more talkative one and <laughs> has a lot of stories to share. So how do you think that this idea of a story within a story adds another layer of depth to the production? I think Albie, the playwright, uses story to further his story, which is the play. He uses it very well. And I think both Peter and Jerry are kind of at a breaking point. Um, Before the play even starts, they're both kind of at a breaking point. Very, very different people, but both kind of on the edge. And I think that they both use language to create the world that they live in. Um, Albie wrote in a play once that past is made up by what we choose to remember and by what we need to forget. I think that kind of, I think that really informs both Peter and Jerry. Mm-hmm. You, they really form themselves with their dialogue and with their stories, mm-hmm. how they communicate to each other. It's everything. That's the whole, the whole play is about communication. And I hear that you're a Vancouver-based actor and writer. Um, how do you think that the zoo story speaks into or impacts the personal lives of individual Vancouverites coming in to watch the production? I think that it's an opportunity to see a, a classic play, uh, a play that is timeless, a play that I think could be performed 50 years from now, because it is about, it is about the universal theme, which is how, how do we connect and what, and what is the world that we choose to inhabit. Also, I think it's, it's a really, like, when it moves and when it moves well, and if Tom and I are doing a good job, then the ride is awesome. And people will have fun, people will laugh, and I think it's, I think you'll be on the edge of your seat. That sounds great. Um, so tell us a little bit more about the character Peter and the role he plays in the production. Uh, well, Peter is, um, I, he, I think he's quite damaged, quite like Jerry is, actually. Um, but they both have a completely different way of expressing it and a completely different way of relating to the world. Peter is, in a lot of ways, the counterpoint to Jerry. He is reserved. He is uh, of a high socioeconomic status. He lacks the openness, and he lacks the introspective nature that Jerry has. Jerry is a very self-aware person, Mm. and uh, Peter is not. He's very cut off in a lot of ways. He's very organized. He likes... He likes things the way they are. He wants to maintain the status quo in a lot of ways. And I think my interpretation of it is because of that damage that I spoke about. Actually, tying that into the next question, um, where did you find the mo- like most of your inspiration for playing the part of Peter mm. and maybe tapping into that damaged part of Peter? Uh, probably living in the city for the past five years. Uh, Tom, I think, said something really cool about the deadening that kind of happens in a city. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the intentional distance, and the the fear that happens for for whatever reason, mm-hmm. and Peter has such a hard time. He has such a hard time connecting to people, mm-hmm. and I don't think he knows why until the play, until the play happens. And uh, I'm really attracted to that change. 
and I think that I've undergone that kind of change in the last five years of my life, probably. Um, I think I've undergone a kind of transformation that, that Peter has as well. As a final question, what was your best memory on set? A moment is the, the photo shoot. Cause Tom and I had a lot of fun, and uh, like we just had a ton of laughs. And it was a, I think it was a great intro to working with Tanya, the director, and uh, for Tom and I to work together again. Before we wrap up, um, I just wanted to say if there was any final remarks any of you guys had about the play before they go watch it. One of the most exciting and I think rewarding parts of the play for me of this production besides working with these two lovely gentlemen um, was working with Scott Bellis who is one of the founders of Bot on the Beach and a very prolific mm -hmm. actor and director and he was actually recruited to be a mentor for the six shows that are part of uh, the dramatic work series at the mm -hmm. college so I got to work with him one-on-one -on -one and he got to come into rehearsals and observe us and give as well and that was just very educational for me and inspirational to see. Uh, well, I, I think the mentor program is uh, a great thing for Fringe. So we've gotten plenty of work done on the piece, but when you are too close to something and you need a second set of eyes, it's great to have somebody with eyes that have seen so much. I mean, mm -hmm. Scott is such an experienced guy and, well, actor and director, and I think just he would just say a few things to us that really would put things into perspective. Uh, yeah, I think people should take a chance on this show. Uh, I think it's, I think it's tons of fun, and I think people, if even if not our show, people really should take a chance on the Vancouver Fringe. There's so much going on, and there's so many fun shows, and I just love the Fringe because it's kind of like, it's, it's like a box of chocolates. You really don't know what you're gonna get, and and you can go down to like to the Fringe Bar and have a drink on Granville Island and be around all the artists and just hang out. And it's so unpretentious and it's cheap, and it's just a lot of fun. Join in celebrating a truly unique UBC occasion with Professor Arvind Gupta, UBC's 13th President and Vice-Chancellor, at his formal installation ceremony Friday, September 12th. Watch the live webcast 10 to 11.30 a.m. at ubc.ca slash installation. The event is sure to be a memorable and inspiring way to kick off his first term as our President. This is the sound of compost and recyclables going into the garbage. The garbage that ends up in the landfill creating greenhouse gases. This is the sound of a more sustainable campus. You can make a difference when you sort it out. Learn more at sustain.ubc.ca slash sort it out. Hi, we're back on the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM, and we're talking about The Fringe today. Thank you, Christine Kim, for that great segment about Edward Albee's The Zoo. And just a reminder, we're doing a live broadcast at The Fringe Festival on Monday, September 8th, between 5 to 7 p.m. And now I am fortunate to have another Fringe guest here, Andrew Wade. Hello. Hi, thanks for coming in. Hi. Oh, it's fantastic to be here. Good. And so tell me a little bit about your Fringe play. 
Uh, yeah, so the show is called The Hatter. Uh, it is the story of a man just trying to get home. Uh, the man is the Mad Hatter. Um, so for the show, he, he puts on a tea party to be as happy and fun and silly and Wonderland-like as possible uh, to try and I don't, bring, usher in the spirit of Wonderland again so he can find a way to get back there from this world that he's now stuck in. Hmm. So he's come from Wonderland and mm-hmm. now he's stuck in everyday life. Yeah, and yeah. And he's... he's that's that's almost like a spiritual journey. Now he wants to get home back to paradise, sort of, mm-hmm, where yeah. he belongs. Yeah, as well as get back to uh, being mad again. That's his paradise, being you know blissfully, happily empty, you know, empty mind in a full cup, uh, <laughs> as opposed to that's my new motto. Yeah, being uh, yeah caught up in you know emotions and feelings and memories and thoughts and such. He just wants to get back to being very present moment. Nothing matters. Let's just have a happy, fun, silly time. Uh, And so it's also sort of a play of uh, someone avoiding talking about something as much as humanly possible. (laughs) What do you mean? Uh, Well, the Hatter is... uh, I I have admittedly been called a sad clown in one uh, review, uh, which I quite enjoy, actually, uh, in that um, he, he's a man like, there's a with backstory, there's history within the Hatter, uh, you know, who he was because he, before he was the Mad Hatter um, and trying to recapture that madness that he so enjoyed. Uh, so there, yeah, the show goes in areas that I think people don't necessarily expect. Um, I, I love it because it, it's a show where myself playing the Hatter as the character wants the show to be as happy and fun and silly and delightful as possible. And just nothing in the tea party quite goes right. Hmm. It sounds amazing. So what inspired you, like, to write it? Uh, I had a little bit of prior experience with the Mad Hatter character uh, back when I was at university at UVic. Um, a directing student had once approached me and another uh, writing student at the time before I joined the theater department as well uh, and uh, asked if we could put together a show for him. He wanted to direct and design a show about Alice returning to Wonderland as a grown woman. Um, So we did. We wrote it. um, He put on an excellent design show. And as I was writing it, I just fell in love with this character in part because uh, with the Hatter, you get to indulge in the every impulse is the right choice. Yeah, so, you know, but yeah, we're going to go do this. No, no, we'll, we'll do this. No, that didn't work. We'll do this. Uh, yeah, so it's full of problem solving. It's full of searching. It's full of trying to find the right thing to do at the moment, um, no matter how ridiculous that each thought may be. Uh, that sounds kind of sane to me, not mad. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's uh, kind of part of the journey of the play. Uh, also within that, um, if you really examine the story of Alice in Wonderland, Alice's adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, uh, one sort of lens you can see it through is that of an innocent girl wandering around where everything and everyone yells at her. <laughs> uh, and I was curious to also try to connect the character with anger issues, to a character with control issues. Um, I, I tend to gravitate towards creating shows about things that terrify me. Uh, for instance, the last show I did actually in Saskatoon this summer, 
It was called The Most Honest Man in the World, and it was all about uh, trying to live life as honestly as possible. And because it terrified me to try to be myself on stage, I did a whole show about uh, personal stories, about prior relationships and all that. Uh, and with this show, uh, the kernel of it uh, really was um, a moment in high school um, in uh, math class where the person behind me had stolen my lunch and was threatening to cut off a mole on the back of my neck with scissors whenever I wasn't paying attention. Um, and she's That's sitting traumatic. behind me and Is such. she? What a- it was a, yeah. Um, <laughs> which makes this next part sound a little worse. Um, so, uh, and I, I don't know, I just uh, reached some sort of point. This is the only time in my life this has happened where without any thought or process or decision or choice involved, uh, it was like I just saw myself do it. I grabbed this person by the throat and shoved them into a chair. And I was by far the most traumatized person of the entire the experience yeah. going like, what just happened? I am so sorry. What? 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 Um, and so, yeah, it occurred to me that that kind of losing control, you know, that people talk about seeing red, that sort of thing, you know, how might that affect a person? Mm-hmm. Um, so you get that with the Hatter. Um, and so you've got that sort of tragic nature to him that balances I think quite well with his fervent desire to be as happy and fun and silly and over the top joyful and wonderful as possible mm-hmm. so you get a bit a, a nice yin yang to his character wow that's really interesting it's mm-hmm. an interesting story and so what happened after you shoved your classmate into the chair did she stop bugging you um yeah I would yeah, yeah I apologized profusely and seemed to be scarred enough to write a show uh <laughs> about it um yeah she seemed more impressed than anything else yeah I don't know <laughs> what that means well it means she's a bully <laughs> yeah yeah so that's and, and of course you're a sensitive person so you would mm-hmm. react that way feeling remorseful she didn't feel that remorseful about tormenting <laughs> you so I feel protective of you right now Ah. But, um, yeah, I also just think it's interesting. You experienced it as happening instantly with mm-hmm. out of your control. But actually, there there was probably some mental processes that just happened at such a lightning mm-hmm. fast speed that you're not conscious of it. That, yeah, but a, perhaps at, at an instinctive reaction mm-hmm. level as opposed to a decision level. Yeah. Like, I've had enough, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, but I like that. And uh, sorry, I, I study psychology, so then I get excited. But you know, mm-hmm. T.J. Daw, he's kind mm-hmm. of a big name at the fringe. Oh, it, he is uh, inspiration to me. It's uh, he, he is a big reason why I did the other show in Saskatoon, just trying to right. write about my own life. Yeah, yeah, he's quite like bears it all, mm-hmm. right? In, in an interesting way. But he studies the Enneagram. I don't know if you know that. Yes. Yeah. And so, what you're the character you're describing as the Hatter really reminds me of the Enneagram Seven always flitting from the next thing to the next happy 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 those darker emotions are there but they, they try to avoid them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yes uh to be honest one of my uh, main experiences with tj Daw is uh he read a blog post i wrote uh and invited me over to his house and him and his girlfriend um interviewed slash sort of interrogated me for about an, like, an hour on uh, like trying to figure out my Enneagram type and all that. So <laughs> what did um, they say? Oh, it was a couple of years ago now. I don't remember the exact, the, which number it was exactly. I remember disagreeing and them saying, <laughs> no, yes, you're wrong. <laughs> saying, yeah, well, that Enneagram and type in particular would never admit that they're that Enneagram type. 
That's like, funny. My mom that's said that to me. Frustrating. <laughs> My mom said that to me on the weekend. She said, No one ever wants to be the Enneagram type that they are. Yeah. So maybe that's kind of a thing. But mm-hmm. oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So who knows? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'll have to look into them a little bit more because I know how fervently he believes in them and I respect him greatly. Uh, I found the, the whole shadow side of those to be. It felt like a little bit of a cop-out at, at first glance, where it was, a you know, each Enneagram type is like this, 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 this. But they have the shadow type also, where they're the opposite of all those things. Mm-hmm. Like, so they're anything? <laughs> anyway. Yeah, and people, we know people, mm-hmm. can read any description and find themselves in it, right? Mm-hmm. You can trick them into saying, oh, this yeah. is you, and they'll be like, yeah, that is like me, but... But it that's could be anything. also part of the value of horoscopes and such. People read into them, hopefully, what they need to get out of them. Yeah. Uh, if they need to find that excuse to, like, push them over the edge towards that decision they want to make, um, then that can be quite useful. Mm-hmm. So tell me about how, like, you got started. Well, so obviously you kind of have a palette mm-hmm. of things that you do in terms of writing or acting. Um, but tell me how you got started in acting. When do you remember as a kid kind of... Mm-hmm making sense to you uh it was in grade three i just on a a random happenstance decision um saw that there were auditions for the school play and i was like yeah why not um and so it was an after school audition we i went into a room and uh the audition was they played music and you just had to like dance to the music in the room uh and that was all it was um, I was a pretty like miserable, not very happy kid who didn't have many friends. Um, so I think that might have been one reason where they were like, yes, let's put him in it. Um, also the play was called The Littlest Christmas Tree. And I was one of the two smallest boys in the entire year, or two smallest kids really in the entire year. Uh, so I got cast as The Littlest Christmas Tree. <laughs> so my first play, yeah, I was the lead character. And, uh, it's... I don't remember a whole lot of the process. Uh, you know, I remember enjoying it. I enjoyed singing as a kid and all that. Um, I remember feeling very cathartic, uh, having moments in the play where, like, the littlest Christmas tree is, like, sitting down in the middle of the stage with all the bigger trees, like, going around, like, you know, taunting him or teasing him and stuff and feeling like... I wasn't actually very bullied as a kid, but I felt like I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a bit of that victim mentality. Um, so that was cathartic. And then when the play ended, it hadn't even occurred to me, you know, well, of course people are going to watch it or something, but everyone's standing up and just like raucous applause and cheering and, you know, the grade sevens, the big kids in the elementary school, like Mm -hmm. reaching out with their hand to give us a high, give me a high five on the Mm -hmm. way out. Um, so I hate to say that I originally started as an actor partially because I enjoyed the fame. Um, but it was uh, more a uh, feeling of acceptance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then later on, you know, uh, weaving into that, just the ability to tell stories, to create new works is just endlessly satisfying. Um, there's a reason why this is the 11th Fringe Festival I've done with a one-man show. Um, really? Eight or nine of them have been with this show and then two with other shows. Um, and I've acted in or stage managed or directed in other shows. So I think I've done about 15 Fringe Festivals total. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just, I love the opportunity to get to tell a story, share a story, uh, and hopefully a story that will stick in people's heads yeah. for, for days to come. Well, you're very expressive, mm-hmm. so it seems like a good profession for you because 
Yes, the hand movements that do not really register in radio, yes. <laughs> so we have about, I don't know, a few minutes. Do you want to do any little segment or song tidbit? You don't have to. Mm-hmm. No pressure. Uh, I can do a tiny section. Okay. Where? Yay. <clears throat> so this is Andrew Wade from The Hatter. <clears throat> All right. Uh, I should uh, preface this. This is uh, also a bit of a sing-along section. Uh, everyone's programs come with uh, a couple songs so they can sing along with. So you get the unbirthday song near the beginning, and this one is uh, later on. Uh, <clears throat> so after some revelations, he goes, uh, he's, <clears throat> all right. Uh, my, my, my queen. Uh, well, all right. Well, let's, let's give it a go. Let's give it a try. Let's attempt to summon a queen into this room. Either the queen of hearts or my queen. I mean, well, if I know anything about queens, it is that in order for a queen to enter a room, she must be properly summoned uh, with a particular song. So, yes, if you turn to your programs, you'll find uh, the appropriate words for a nice, solemn, dignified singing of God Save the Queen. It's going to be delightful, and uh, it's going to be, uh, yes, it's going to spark someone coming through that curtain, through that door, into our our little room here. Uh, So, music, please. There's background music. God save our spacious queen, long live our global queen, God save the queen. Send her some flatulence, rearrange like Orpheus, song to strain over us, God save the queen. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't think quite the words are quite. Thy closest hairs we swore on her be greased some more against the grain. Profound halitosis, how great her nasal drips. All thy mucus we miss, God save the queen. No, 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 no. Sometimes I detest the way Wonderland twists and perverts one's words, because she deserves so much better than that. Right. Um, yes. That's a little Woo! bit. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, Thank you. You can't would... see it on the radio, but yes, he's fighting the words and trying to not say the wrong words. He's trying to make a dignified song, but yeah. He just can't do it. Now, I know I was like, oh, the words are different than I expected, but very British, very British humor, I think. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, um, that, that was a conscious choice on my part with the character, um, you know, uh, everyone knows the cartoon animated version of Alice in Wonderland. Um, but I didn't really want to talk with a lisp for an entire hour. I think <laughs> I might have no tongue by the end of a run. Yeah. Um, so I decided to make his hatter persona, yes, is uh, British, uh, you know, slightly British and such. And uh, he has his own uh, crisis of identity and such. So switching out of different voices and whatnot. Excellent. Well, 
please check out vancouverfringe.com for details of yep. Andrew's show, The Hatter. You've got quite a few shows going on between September 5th and the 13th. Yeah, it's Studio 16, which is like 10 minute walk from Granville Island. It's really close. Yes. And you've also got a website, andrewwade.ca. Yep. Now we're out of time, but I wanted to... Ah. Did you have one thing you no, wanted to ahead. say? Okay. Uh, I wanted to talk about the Vancouver Latin film festival that's on um but i don't have time but i am going to see two films tomorrow night after work and i will be writing up a review of them uh, on citr.ca so in lieu of talking about the vancouver latin film festival i'm going to play a song by local artist destroyer who's of spanish heritage and he wrote five spanish songs i guess as kind of an ep um, and this one is called Maria de las Nieves, and I haven't heard it, but here he is, Dan from Destroyer, and stay tuned for All Ears up next. Yeah. 